In the name of our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Sustainer. Amen. Way back in the day, when I was in my teens and going to church weekends and retreats, there was a charismatic young priest who was great with words and always had his guitar on hand, ready to sing us a song. As I began to pray over today's gospel lesson, one of Ted McNabb's songs kept popping in my head, and the words went like this. I always drive 55, I always buckle up. I usually drop something in when the beggar shakes his cup. I've always tried to live my life the way I'm supposed to. So Lord, I know you'd like to grant this request I make of you. Well, I know what you said, Lord, about the camel and the needle's eye, but believe me when I say I'll be praying on the day I die. Come on, camel, squeeze on through. Come on, camel, I'm pulling for you. Come on, camel, give it your all for a rich man with his back to the wall. Come on, camel, concentrate. I hope it's been a while since you ate. Come on, camel, squeeze on through. Come on, camel, there's a rich man praying for you. In last week's Gospels, the Pharisees were looking for answers about divorce, you know, that little light topic. And this week, it's a follower of Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. He exudes enthusiasm, not testing Jesus as others have. He genuinely seems to want to know how to get it right. The problem is not the motive of the man's question. It's the question itself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? As if eternal life was something you could simply earn yourself, like a life insurance policy or a 401k. The question seems to miss the point. But Jesus does go on to list the commandments he must not break. He must live honestly. He must not murder or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness. He must honor his parents. As a first-time reader, one might get their pen out and take notes on this list of things they must do for eternal kingdom life. With confidence, the man says, as if the commandments were little boxes to check off on that long list. Teacher, I've done all these things since my youth. There you have it. Eternal life is just around the corner, boxes checked. It's all going so well. The lesson says that Jesus looked right at him and loved him. I find myself wondering what that love looked like to the young man. Was it a quiet smile? Was it just a nod of the head? Maybe it was just a pause in the conversation where the man's achievements could just sink in and marinate. Whatever that moment might have been, Jesus' next words seemed to hit like a tsunami. You lack one thing. Go sell what you own. Give your money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. Bam! 
The man was doing so well with his checklist. I mean, he had ticked every box. I mean, you have to feel a little sorry for him, right? I mean, here he is. He's just named Jesus, naming this extensive list of commands that he states as being one. Go, collect all your belongings, all your things. Who doesn't love their things? Come on. Sell them off and give the money you collect to those who are poor and in need. And then with nothing, come back and then you are ready to follow. I can almost hear the red hot chili peppers. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Right? Here they are being called to give it away. All of it. That man's face of joyful confidence shifts to one of shock and grieving. And he departs, feeling that deep sadness of, how must I achieve this when I have so many possessions? Jesus' lesson doesn't stop there. He now turns to his disciples saying, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Still holding the tension of what has come to pass, the disciples are perplexed. And then Jesus doubles down, saying, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Exclamation point. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Astounded, the disciples simply ask, well, then who can be saved? Drum roll. Jesus says, for mortals, it is impossible. Impossible, but not for God. For God... All things are possible. You know, scholars have argued for hundreds of years about that camel and the needle. A 10th century scholar stated that the eye of the needle is a small gate in the old city of Jerusalem where a camel would simply need to have his packs removed so then he could squeeze through the small opening. Only others, I think I have a picture in front of one of those small doors on my trip to Jerusalem, and I'm pretty sure I was told that version of the eye of the needle. But yet others have argued that the translation of the word camel is actually translated as rope, meaning that it's easier for a rope to be threaded through a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Even others say the expression of getting something large and impossible through the eye of a needle is an ancient expression common in that day. The thing is, everyone wants to find a way to make it plausible, plausible for wealth to not be an obstacle to eternal life. Just like Ted McNabb, we're all cheering and praying for that camel so that we don't have to come face to face with our own incredible privilege. In seminary, we did that crossing the line game that we did last week for formation. And one of the questions was that you have a means of wealth and only a few people stepped across the line. And then the professor said, I think all of us have to acknowledge that we have wealth. 
And one student said, I have student loans up to my eyeballs. You cannot tell me I am wealthy. And she said, yes, but you are wealthy in the fact that somebody would even give you those loans. We are wealthy and we are a wealthy people in this community and we have to at least be willing to sit with this idea of what Jesus is saying to us today about wealth. Because many a sermon has stated that wealth is simply a metaphor here for all the many things and ways that keep God from being at the center of our hearts. Maybe wealth is only one obstacle for some folks. Maybe we can be wealthy, but our love of our jobs is what keeps us from the center. Maybe it's the love of our children that keeps God from the center. Maybe it's the love of keeping our youthfulness that keeps God from being at the center of our lives. Maybe it's the love of our sports teams. Maybe it's the love of just simply being needed and valued. Maybe it's the love of something that has nothing to do with money or wealth. Maybe wealth is just a big metaphor. We can escape that. Wealth is fine. It's the other things that keep us from God. Yes, there is always more going on in these passages than what is on the page. That's for sure. This text is a metaphor for more than wealth. But let's be clear. I'm pretty sure it is about wealth being a pretty big deterrent from living the kingdom life here and beyond. Far and wide, marriage counselors and therapists will tell you that the number one tension in most marriages is money. Money is seductive, and it gives us the illusion that we can manage our lives with a to-do checklist of control and power. Things that don't feel in our control, money very often can buy us that sense of power over things that are hard. I think about the documentary, Operation Varsity Blues, the college admissions scandal. It's on Netflix, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's covering the college scandal of these parents who paid all this money to get their kids into these great schools. You know, I watched that movie ready to just loathe all those parents who sought to buy places for their children into these elite universities. How could they do this? But as I'm watching and I'm seeing this story unfold, what I see are a set of parents that feel powerless that see a world where it doesn't matter how good those grades are, how hard their kids work, there are more kids in front of them that have the same look on paper. And they're powerless and they're scared because they love those children and they would do anything for them. And so money becomes the seductive tool to protect that thing which they love. I walked away from that documentary feeling sad, sad, and I could see how it happens. You can see how a phone call from someone saying, I can help you, I can make this problem go away. Just get the checkbook out. There's so many places in our life 
where we use our wealth to protect us from having to trust in God, from having to trust in the grace of God to be at the center. Jesus is saying, let go of the I. Let go of the what must I do. Let go of all that keeps us from God. The treasure is not what you can earn or save up. It is treasure of God's grace to make the impossible possible. It's only with God that we can encounter and experience that kingdom. What Jesus is proposing is a total turning upside down of our values and the way we live. Jesus is saying that it's not about the success of our own individual egos. It's about discovering the real treasure of God's kingdom for which it is worth giving away everything. But how can we do this? How can we let go of our own security? We're honed to be people who seek that security. It's asking us to be in the tension and vulnerability of not being in control. Is Jesus demanding the loss of all I have achieved? The loss of myself? The young man goes away, he's grieving, for he had many possessions. But it's really important to go back to what Jesus said in that moment when he looks on. Jesus loved him. He loved him even though he knew that that rich man was going to walk away. Jesus was right there on the road offering another way. But even when the man chose to leave, Jesus loved this road and journey of life is long and twisty and windy. That moment was not the end of the road for the rich man, but possibly and perhaps the beginning of a new road, a real one, one where his possessions didn't own him. Maybe that young man went away grieving, but saw a new way forward and returned we don't know. We're left wondering. And then the disciples, they say, we've followed. We gave up everything. We did what you told them to do. We got this. And that's when Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. I don't presume to think that we're all going to leave this sermon and sell all of our worldly possessions. However, I do believe that whenever we read this lesson, it is an opportunity to reflect honestly with ourselves about the places that money has brought us a false confidence, that we are somehow self-sufficient creatures with no need of the divine, and to ask how we are being called to give away more to others. John Wesley states, having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, 
Then give all you can. May we acknowledge our own relationship with money and how it is a continued challenge to everyone's faith. And while we must be in this world and of this world and make those compromises every day and make those choices, may we seek to give and love and allow ourselves to trust in love over fear and trust in the abundance over scarcity that so often drives our decisions. Every day, we are met with new challenges to put Jesus at the heart of our lives. And on this day, may we hold all the wealth in our being and among us as an opportunity to think about how we can be lights to the world, give generously, give lovingly to one another so that we too can experience God at our heart. Amen.